Isn't it great news? Let's pray together. Lord, it's with tremendous joy that we are coming together again. It feels, Lord, like we have had a year worth of uh, Advent, a year worth of Lent, waiting, anticipating, longing for your coming. And Lord, now we get to join together again. And uh, so, Lord, thank you that you have made this possible by taming a pandemic. Um, we pray that that trajectory will continue, that you will continue to hold it down, that you will snuff it out. Uh, Lord, that you will spare many people the, the pain of the illness and uh, that it, it will eventually be gone. Uh, we trust in you for that. Lord, thank you that you have made it possible for us to gather uh, together again. And for those who can't be here with us yet, Lord, we pray and uh, we long for their joining. And uh, we just pray that they would be, um, be able to enjoy the fellowship in, in the way that's possible and benefit from your word and from singing together. Uh, Father, we think of Joanne. We thank you for her uh, successful surgery, and we pray that you just continue to, to strengthen her and, and um, help her to heal. And uh, we long to see her with us again soon, too. Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to, like Ramey said, the most important day in the history of the world, the most significant event in all of human history, surpassing moon landings and crossing the Atlantic and the discovery of fire. Lord, these things pale in comparison to what we're about to look at. So, Holy Spirit, come and be with us. Help us to see and to understand. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. On Jesus' painful walk toward the place of the skull, his journey to Golgotha, the hill where he would be crucified, his mind was always on one thing, and it wasn't what you would expect. He had just been scourged. He had very little skin left on his back. He'd been crowned with a, thro uh, a crown of thorns and beaten on the head, so his scalp is ripped up. And as he, he carries this painful cross on his bruised back, as he's walking to Golgotha, he comes upon some women who are weeping for him, who are crying over the, the, the terrible treatment that he's received. And his response to them is, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself and for your children. As he explains then to them the destruction that was about to come on Jerusalem when the Romans would level the city. As he's laid down on the crossbeam and, and the Roman soldiers doing their duty like it was no, no other day for them, as they drive the nails into his hands and his feet, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. As he's on the cross and suffering the, the death that's lingering over him, he looks to his mother and says, Woman, here is your son. And to John, here is your mother. When the thief that was hanging next to him said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he says to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. His suffering journey to the cross, his suffering journey to death, his focus was not on himself. He didn't decry his injustice, the, the injustice of the trials, the fake trials that he, he faced. He didn't complain about the physical nature of his suffering. Instead, he looked and spoke constantly to others about their needs until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon when the second darkness of the day came. The sun was eclipsed. There was no light. And at that moment, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something changed. 
he went from looking outward to others to this moment where he starts talking to God about himself, his own suffering. His physical suffering didn't compare to what he just endured. And so what he does in that moment is he quotes Psalm 22. And so this morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 22, and we're going to see in it, first of all, David's suffering. Then in verse 21, the second half of 21, there's a transition, a startling transition. And then the second half of the psalm is the result of God's deliverance. So let's take a look at this and understand what it is. Why would Jesus quote this psalm? Why would this be the psalm that he would quote? As a matter of fact, commentators call Psalm 22 the psalm of the cross because it is so rich in, in the crucifixion of Christ. So when we look at David's suffering, we see three movements in this section. David and, and uh, God is the first section. David and public opinion is the second section. And then David and violent people. And within those three sections in that, that part about his suffering, there's this repeated structure to the way he does it. There's a cry. There's, there's a crying out on, of David on, on his behalf of what is wrong. And then he responds to himself with assurance. So let's take a look at this. First one, verses 1 through 5. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So he, he begins by stating his problem. The problem is, Lord, I am in tremendous pain. I am in tremendous suffering. There, there are huge problems, and I call out to you. I scream to you, and Lord, you're not hearing me. You're not answering. Where are you? Why are you not answering me? And, and that is a very human, a very real experience. Have you ever had those times when you think you, your prayers just are going nowhere? You can't believe that God is not answering in this time. You need him the most. When I was in seminary, I was working a full-time job and doing seminary full-time and getting very little sleep. And I would get in the car and, and drive on the freeway heading to work, and I'd be praying, and it felt like my prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling of my car and coming right back down. And it was, God, where are you in this? Why aren't you answering me? And God does this sometimes. He does sometimes not answer in the ways that we expect. And so David cries out to him, but notice how David cries out. He doesn't say, if you're God, he says to him, my God, why are you not answering me? This is David's covenant with God. God had said to Israel when he delivered them from, uh, from Egypt, when he brought them out to Mount Sinai, and he said to them the covenant promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so that's exactly what David is counting on. My God, I am your people. Why aren't you answering? Why are you so far from hearing me? Why are you not doing anything about this? And that's his cry. That's the heartbreaking cry of David. And then he, he assures himself, yet you are holy. He reminds himself of some rich, deep, important theology. God is holy. He's not like anyone else. He is utterly different than his creation. He is holy in the most perfect possible way, yet you are holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. And then he says, 
In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. So he's looking back to the covenant promises that God made and kept. David is suffering right now just in this period in his life. And yet Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And when they cried out, God heard them. But it took a while. He didn't do it right away. So what David is reminding himself at this point is he is, he's expressed to God his actual feelings. This is what I feel right now, God. And then he reminds himself who God is. You are holy. You have delivered. You have saved in the past. I'm counting on that. That's what's going to hold me together. That's what's going to keep me from falling apart is, Lord, even though right now you're not answering, I know that you will. You have a track record of it. You have a proven history of it. The next refrain is David in public opinion. He cries out, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I, cast, I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. So he's, he's surrounded. First of all, he's, he's got this conflict internally because he feels God's distant from him. God's not answering him. And now he looks around him, and what's, what is the public opinion? He's a worm. He's not even a man. The people who are surrounding him and hate him are going, you're not even worthy of it. Think of a worm in, in ancient Israel. Worms ate dead bodies. They were unclean. They were nasty. They, they weren't anything to be recognized as, as worthy of anything. They were disgusting creatures, and that's how the people around him are seeing him. I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. That's the general term for humanity. Adam in, in Hebrew means all of humanity. I am scorned by all of humanity and despised by the people. The people is probably speaking about Israel. So humanity in general is mocking me, and Israel in, in particular is making fun of me. And what they're making fun of him for, fun of him for is because he trusts in God. He trusts in God. God's not answering him, so, you know, he must not be trusting in him enough. And so they mock him for that. That's his cry. That's his, his broken heart. That's the, the forces outside of him that are coming in, hearing these things over and over again, being told that you're not worthy, eventually begins to sink in. Even if you don't believe it, it begins to sink in. It begins to affect you. It can change how you feel about yourself. Your, your self-worth goes down because, well, they must be right. Everybody's saying it. They must be right. So how does David comfort himself? He reminds himself of who made him. Yet you are he who took me from my mother's womb. You made me to trust in my mother, uh, my, uh, trust you at my mother's breast. David reminds himself here, I'm not a worm. I am a man. God made me. He created me in my mother's womb. He, he caused me to trust him from a very early age. On you, I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. I am worthy of these things. And it's not because I feel I'm worthy of these things. And it's not because these people think I'm worthy of these things. I am worthy of these things because I am made in God's image. God made me to be this way. That's a truth that can't be eclipsed by any of this. My feelings or others' opinions. God, you made me this way. 
and I will trust in you. I've trusted in you all my life. I will continue on. And so he adds a request. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. The weight of public opinion is pressing down on him. And then the next one, the the violent people that surround him. David and violence. And, And listen to how he describes it. Many strong bulls surround me. They're like ravening and roaring lions. Dogs surround me. A company of evildoers surrounds me. So these these strong bulls. When I was a kid, my parents would ship me off to my grandparents' farm during summer break from school so that I would work for free. And one year when I got out there, one of my, 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 my grandfather had one cow, and it got out, and it got into the next pen over. And so he went, and he couldn't bring it back right away, so he chained it to a tree. Not like real tight, it was like on a leash, but it was chained to a tree. And Timmy's job was to go down there every day and feed that cow and spray some disinfectant on its neck because it was getting roughed up. And so I would trot down the path, hop a fence, go out, feed the the cow, spray some disinfectant on it. And one day I looked up, and there's a bull probably about 30 yards from me staring at me. And I was thinking, this is not going to go well. (laughs) This isn't going to be easy. When I sprayed the disinfectant on the cow, she jumped, and the bull started charging. Bulls are scary things. We don't have much experience with them, but bulls are scary things. There is a great deal of mass with a lot of muscle propelling that mass forward. And by the way, some of them have pointy bits sticking out the front of their head. Bulls surround me. That's a representation of incredible power surrounding David. There are bulls all around me. And these bulls are so so violent, so aggravated, they're like a roaring and a raving lion. It's a terrifying sight to see this. And then he says, there are dogs that are surrounding me. Now, when you hear dogs, don't think of Linus, my goofy golden retriever who just is everybody's best buddy. That wasn't how they saw dogs in the ancient Near East. Dogs were yucky. They were terrible things. You you didn't have them as pets. They were just there. Um, When I was in uh, Kenya uh, one year, I was going door to door with a seminary student. And by the way, door to door was like 15 minutes between the doors because these were out in farms. And as we're walking, we're talking, and this one dog comes charging at the gate and starts barking, and the guy picks up a rock and lobs it at it. And he said, why do Americans like dogs? They're filthy. They're disgusting animals. That's how they would see dogs in the ancient Near East. And these aren't just like pet dogs. These are, these are dangerous dogs. When we first moved here, I heard of a, a court case out in Little Rock, a woman was riding her horse, and a man didn't have a gate on his yard, and three of his pit bulls charged out, attacked, and killed the woman. And the court case found him guilty of her death because he didn't control his dogs. That's the dogs that are surrounding David. That's the situation that he's in. And so what he yells is, deliver me from the power of the sword and the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. That's That's where he's at. That's what he's looking at. He's not just facing this inward turmoil because he feels God is distant. He's not facing just this social pressure because people are telling him he's a worm and not a man and he's not worthy. He's facing physical violence. There are people who are trying to kill him, dangerous people, people who can do this. So the thing is, this this pressure that he's feeling is not just the threat of physical violence, 
This is a public execution that he's going through. In, in those days, when you deposed a king, you didn't arrest him, put him in jail, and put him on trial. You killed him and sat on his throne. That's how you deposed a king. So when Saddam Hussein was overthrown, they arrested him, they put him in jail, and, and, and they executed him. That's not how this worked. You killed the king and you sat down on the throne. So listen to this. Listen to some of these things that David is experiencing as he's surrounded by these violent people. All of my bones are out of joint. All of my bones are out of joint. You lay me in the dust of death. He's dead. He has, he's been executed. You have, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They divide my garments, and for my clothing they cast lots. Why would they divide his clothes? Because he doesn't need them anymore. He's been executed. The way the executioners get paid is whatever the body has on it, take it. And so they're taking the clothes. So, so the picture here is, this is how far it's gone. This is how bad the oppression is. Lord, I have been executed. But this all raises a problem, and I'm sure you've been thinking this all along. How is this David? The psalm title is a psalm of David. And that could mean psalm of as in about or psalm of as in from, like David wrote it. And I'll tell you, either interpretation doesn't solve the problem. When did David ever experience anything like this? The closest we can get is in 2 Samuel 17. Absalom, his son, formed a coup and tried to take the throne. And so David learns of it early, and he departs Jerusalem. And the closest he gets to anything like this is Hushai walked along beside him on a ridge, hurling rocks and insults at him. And, and as that happened, one of his mighty men said, you want me to go up and take his head off? And David said, no, he may be right. This, this may be the right thing. 2 Samuel chapter 23, David talks about longing for the water from the well at, Jerusalem, or at uh, Bethlehem, where he grew up. And a couple of his mighty men go charging off, get him some water, and bring it back. But he didn't ask for that water because he was thirsty. There was water closer. He was pining for home. So these, these things that we see just don't line up with David's life. We never saw him emaciated or pierced, although Saul tried a couple of times. He didn't quite succeed. So we never see David like that. So how on earth are we supposed to interpret Psalm 22 if it's of David? Well, I think the answer comes, first of all, from the mouth of Peter on Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday, I don't know what day of the week it was. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. As he's describing Jesus' resurrection, he tells the people of David, being therefore a prophet, he foresaw and he spoke about the Christ. Now the context there is Jesus' resurrection, but I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say he had to die first, and David might have seen that too. The censure, the thing that really draws it together and puts it in the place where David is speaking of Jesus, to me, comes in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. There, the author cites Psalm 22, verse 22, and puts it in Jesus' mouth. This is, this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So when we look at Psalm 22, and you put a couple of these things together, what David is doing is David is writing from his own personal experience. He is, he is under duress right now, and he's writing a song. But as he's writing, the song keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's just amazed at the end of, that is incredible. 
And he could see what that was going at. He foresaw the Christ. So when we want to interpret Acts, or, uh, Psalm 22, what we have to do is go back and read it in light of who Jesus is. So it is in Matthew 27 that Jesus cries out for the throne, from the, the, uh, the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He starts theoretically praying through Acts 22, or uh, Acts, I, I preached Acts a couple years ago and now I'm stuck there. Psalm 22, he, he starts praying through it. He quotes the first verse of it, and then something that, that I find extremely interesting is the last verse of 22 says, he has done it. And it could be David looking forward and, and to seeing Jesus on the cross and saying, he has done it. And Jesus himself would say his last words, it is finished. Another thing about this is in Hebrew, there's no direct object to the verb. So we have to supply he. It must be talking about God because of the context. But that phrase could be easily translated, it is finished. So the theory is Jesus on the cross may have been praying through Acts, or Psalm 22. He may have been praying through that whole thing. So he would express to God his frustration. Why am I alone? Why have you forsaken me? Why am I cut off? And then remind himself, but you delivered the fathers and you'll deliver me. He, he would be hanging on the cross and hearing people around him scorn him and laugh at him as he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And they misunderstand it and think, oh, he's calling for Elijah. He's not calling for Elijah. And then they say, well, if he's calling for Elijah, let's see if Elijah shows up and brings him down. They're mocking him. And so that public opinion is he's a worm. He's not a man. And yet he would remind himself, but Lord, I have trusted you from my mother's breast. I have been cast on you from my mother's womb. I have always been your person and you have always been my God. And so when the violence comes against him, he would cry out, Lord, this is terrible. This is, this is a horrible thing. But we have to get to the second part. We have to get to the deliverance. And to get there, we have to go through the second part of 21b. So verse 21, what he says is, save me from the mouth of the lion. So he said those, those, those bulls, those bulls of Bashan, they were like a roaring lion. Save me from them. And the very next thing he says is, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me. Not please rescue me, but he puts it in the past tense. You have done this. This is something that you have accomplished. So when we put, Jesus, put these words in Jesus' mouth, he is hanging on the cross, publicly executed. And the thing that he's praying through, one of the things that he says is, you have rescued me. It's, it's done. And so why would Jesus then yell out when that, that, that second night of the day shone at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Why would he yell out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God did forsake him in the most incredible way. What Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 is, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. He who knew no sin, Jesus had no sin of his own, was made sin for us. He stood in our place as sin. In Galatians, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And so as Jesus takes on himself our sin and our curse on that tree, we have to remember that God looks away because 
In Habakkuk, he says, you are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. Now, the tremendous mystery here is how could one person of the eternal trinity turn away from the other one? How could God forsake God? I have no idea. I wouldn't even hazard a guess. I don't understand how the Trinity functions on a real high level anyway. But I believe that what our scriptures are telling us is God forsook God. God the Father looked away from his only begotten Son. And the Son cried out, why have you forsaken me? But he didn't cry out, why have you forsaken me? Out of doubt or shame or an expectation of loss. Because he got to 21b, you have rescued me. God turned from him, but he didn't leave him there. He rescued him. He lifted him from the grave to life imperishable. And so now that we're done with Good Friday, let's get to Easter Sunday. What became of Jesus' resurrection? After he defeated those things, after he made it through all of that, this takes us back to that walk to Golgotha. When Jesus was going to the cross, when he was heading to the cross, he was concerned about other people. He was talking to other people about their need. And now we come to the second part, the results of the resurrection. And what he does is he once again turns to people, not to himself. He doesn't say, see, I was, I was a good guy after all. Instead, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And where do we see that happen? John chapter 20, verse 17. When, when Mary comes and meets Jesus as he walks out of the grave, Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Go to my brothers, because I will tell of my brothers of your great name. And when they see me resurrected, then they'll know your name is great. They will see the victory that you have brought. And so in verse 23, who, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the, afflicted, uh, the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. So he looks to the deliverance that he's experienced, and he says it was a deliverance no one expected. I didn't expect it that way. I, I wouldn't expect to be delivered like that. Through death? That didn't make any sense. We, we needed deliverance in other ways, but since we are afflicted, since we are the weak and the marginal, we look to Jesus' resurrection, and he says, I beat all the foes. I beat the enemies you couldn't touch. I, I beat the enemies you weren't even aware you had. And so the result of that is he carries the word forward. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nation. So Jesus' resurrection is in the face of those who mocked him. Remember, he said, all of mankind mocks me. The nations now will worship God, and the people despise me. Israel will worship God. It will come to all the nations. The kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules the nations. All the kingdoms of the earth shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. 
That's exactly what he's promising here. He's looking to the deliverance that he's experienced and saying, this is more than I could have expected. This is more than David could imagine what it would look like. And Jesus is saying, this is going out to everybody. This isn't just me being vindicated and saying, see, I'm okay anyway. This is, it's going out to the nations. It's flowing out. Jesus' resurrection would bring those foes and those who despised him and mocked him to the throne of God in worship. What an amazing resurrection. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him who shall, uh, before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. The dead will worship. The dead will be brought back. The resurrection of Jesus is a precursor. It's a taste. The rich and the poor, the strong and the weak, the mighty and the lame, the alive and the dead will be brought to the throne to worship. That's the power of that resurrection. And so in the end, he says, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. The result of Jesus' vindication is that it won't die in one generation. The, the, the result of this triumph over those foes is it will be told to a generation and told to a generation and told to a generation. The gates of hell will not, preserve, um, will not stand against this. This is Jesus' cry on the cross. This is what's going through Jesus' mind on the cross. That's how he fought despair. That's how he fought against the pain of being lost, is he trusted in the Lord. He counted on him, and he remembered his word and repeated it to himself. So here's a verse for you to repeat to yourself, an Easter verse to remember. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He gave his son. He turned his back to him. My God, why have you forsaken me? He gave his son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Why? Because the son has eternal life, because the son has come back, because that's who he is. That's the message of Easter in the Psalm of the Cross. Let's pray. Lord, we sang this morning, because he lives, and we sang wonderful things that are true because you live. And Lord, that is not like some celebrity that, that we can just be glad this person is alive. Lord, that person was born, that person will die, that person will rot in the ground and be gone and forgotten in 10,000 years. But Lord, when we sing, because he lives, I can, I can face tomorrow, it's because, Lord, you did live and you died and you rose again. And because you live, because you've come back to life, I can face tomorrow. Lord, we know from the psalm that everything is in your hands. The kingship, kingdom, I'm sorry, the kingship belongs to you. And so, Lord, thank you for Easter. Thank you for the rest of that story, Lord, for showing us that whoever trusts in you will not perish but have eternal life because you led the way. You took that first step out of the grave for us. Lord, be glorified in our presence, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.